Section 15 of Swan's Way. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. Translated by C. K. Scott Moncrief. Section 15 Swan in Love. To admit you to the little nucleus, the little group, the little clan, at the Verdurin, one condition sufficed, but that one was indispensable. You must give tacit adherence to a creed, one of whose articles was that the young pianist, whom Madame Verdurin had taken under her patronage that year, and of whom she said, really, it oughtn't to be allowed to play Wagner as well as that. Left both Plante and Rubinstein sitting, while Dr. Cotard was a more brilliant diagnostician than Potin. Each new recruit, whom the Verdurins failed to persuade that the evening spent by other people in other houses than theirs were as dull as ditch-water, saw himself banished forthwith women being in this respect more rebellious than men more reluctant to lay aside all worldly curiosity and the desire to find out for themselves whether other drawing-rooms might not sometimes be as entertaining and the verdurin feeling moreover that this critical spirit and this demon of frivolity might by their contagion prove fatal to the orthodoxy of the little church they had been obliged to expel one after another all those of the faithful who were of the female sex apart from the doctor's young wife they were reduced almost exclusively that season for all that madame verdurin herself was a thoroughly good woman and came of a respectable middle-class family, excessively rich and wholly undistinguished, with which she had gradually, and of her own accord, severed all connection. To a young woman almost of a certain class, a Madame de Crecy, whom Madame Verdurin called by her Christian name Odette, and pronounced a love, and to the pianist's aunt, who looked as though she had, at one period, answered the bell. Ladies quite ignorant of the world, who, in their social simplicity, were so easily led to believe that the Princesse de Sagan and the Duchesse de Guermont were obliged to pay large sums of money to other poor wretches, in order to have anyone at their dinner-parties that if somebody had offered to procure them an invitation to the house of either of those great dames, the old doorkeeper and the woman of easy virtue would have contemptuously declined. The Verdurin never invited you to dinner. You had your place laid there. There was never any program for the evening's entertainment. The young pianist would play only if he felt inclined, for no one was forced to do anything, and as Monsieur Verdurin used to say, we're all friends here, Liberty Hall, you know. If the pianist suggested playing the Ride of the Valkyries, or the Prelude to Tristan, Madame Verdurin would protest, not that the music was displeasing to her, but on the contrary, that it made too violent an impression. Then you want me to have one of my headaches? You know quite well. It's the same every time he plays that. I know what I'm in for. Tomorrow, when I want to get up, nothing doing. If he was not going to play, they talked, and one of the friends, usually the painter who was in favour there that year, would spin as M. Verdurin put it, a damned funny yarn that made em all split with laughter, and especially Madame Verdurin, 
for whom, so strong was her habit of taking literally the figurative accounts of her emotions, Dr. Cotard, who was then just starting in general practice, would really have to come one day and set her jaw, which she had dislocated with laughing too much. Evening dress was barred, because you were all good pals, and didn't want to look like the boring people who were to be avoided like the plague, and only asked to the big evenings, which were given as seldom as possible, and then only if it would amuse the painter, or make the musician better known. The rest of the time you were quite happy playing charades, and having supper in fancy dress, and there was no need to mingle any strange element with the little clan. But just as the good pals came to take a more and more prominent place in Madame Verdurin's life, so the bores, the nuisances, grew to include everybody and everything that kept her friends away from her, that made them sometimes plead previous engagements, the mother of one, the professional duties of another, the little place in the country of a third, if Dr. Cotard felt bound to say good-night as soon as they rose from table, so as to go back to some patient who was seriously ill, I don't know, Madame Verdurin would say, I'm sure it will do him far more good if you don't go disturbing him again this evening. He will have a good night without you. Tomorrow morning you can go round early, and you will find him cured." From the beginning of December it would make her quite ill to think that the faithful might fail her on Christmas and New Year's days. The pianist's aunt insisted that he must accompany her, on the latter, to a family dinner at her mother's. "'You don't suppose she'll die, your mother?' exclaimed Madame Verdurin bitterly. "'If you don't have dinner with her on New Year's Day, like people in the provinces!' Her uneasiness was kindled again in Holy Week. "'Now you, doctor, you're a sensible, broad-minded man. You'll come, of course, on Good Friday, just like any other day,' she said to Cotard, in the first year of the little nucleus, in a loud and confident voice, as though there could be no doubt of his answer. But she trembled as she waited for it, for if he did not come, she might find herself condemned to dine alone. I shall come on Good Friday, to say good-bye to you, for we are going to spend the holidays in Auvergne. In Auvergne? to be eaten by flies and all sorts of creatures. A fine lot of good that will do you. And after a solemn pause, if you had only told us, we would have tried to get up a party, and all gone there together, comfortably. And so, too, if one of the faithful had a friend, or one of the ladies, a young man, who was liable now and then, to make them miss an evening, the Verdurin, who were not in the least afraid of a woman's having a lover, provided that she had him in their company, loved him in their company, and did not prefer him to their company, would say, Very well, then, bring your friend along. And he would be put to the test, to see whether he was willing to have no secrets from Madame Verdurin, whether he was susceptible of being enrolled in the little clan. If he failed to pass, the faithful one who had introduced him would be taken on one side, and would be tactfully assisted to quarrel with the friend or mistress. But if the test proved satisfactory, the newcomer would in turn be numbered among the faithful. And so when, in the course of this same year, the courtesan told Monsieur Verdurin that she had made the acquaintance of such a charming gentleman, Monsieur Swann, and hinted that he would very much like to be allowed to come, Monsieur Verdurin, 
carried the request at once to his wife. He never formed an opinion on any subject until she had formed hers, his special duty being to carry out her wishes, and those of the faithful generally, which he did with boundless ingenuity. My dear, Madame du Cressy has something to say to you. She would like to bring one of her friends here, a Monsieur Swann. What do you say? Why, as if anybody could refuse anything to a little piece of perfection like that. Be quiet. No one asked your opinion. I tell you that you are a piece of perfection. Just as you like, replied Odette, in an affected tone, and then went on, You know I am not fishing for compliments. Very well. Bring your friend, if he's nice. Now, there was no connection whatsoever between the little nucleus and the society which Swann frequented, and a purely worldly man would have thought it hardly worth his while, when occupying so exceptional a position in the world, to seek an introduction to the Verdurin. But Swann was so ardent a lover that, once he had got to know almost all the women of the aristocracy, once they had taught him all that there was to learn, he had ceased to regard those naturalization papers, almost a patent of nobility, which the Faubourg Saint-Germain had bestowed upon him, save as a sort of negotiable bond, a letter of credit with no intrinsic value, which allowed him to improvise a status for himself in some little hole in the country, or in some obscure quarter of Paris, where the good-looking daughter of a local squire or solicitor had taken his fancy. For at such times desire, or love itself, would revive in him a feeling of vanity, from which he was now quite free in his everyday life, although it was no doubt the same feeling which had originally prompted him towards that career as a man of fashion in which he had squandered his intellectual gifts upon frivolous amusements and had made use of his erudition in matters of art only to advise society ladies what pictures to buy and how to decorate their houses and this vanity it was which made him eager to shine in the sight of any fair unknown who had captivated him for the moment with a brilliance which the name of swann by itself did not emit and he was most eager when the fair unknown was in humble circumstances just as it is not by other men of intelligence that an intelligent man is afraid of being thought a fool, so it is not by the great gentleman, but by boors and bounders, that a man of fashion is afraid of finding his social value underrated. Three-fourths of the mental ingenuity displayed, of the social falsehoods scattered broadcast ever since the world began, by people whose importance they have served only to diminish, have been aimed at inferiors, and Swann, who behaved quite simply, and was at his ease when with a duchess, would tremble for fear of being despised, and would instantly begin to pose were he to meet her grace's maid. Unlike so many people, who, either from lack of energy or else from a resigned sense of the obligation laid upon them by their social grandeur to remain moored like houseboats to a certain point on the bank of the stream of life abstain from the pleasures which are offered to them above and below that point that degree in life in which they will remain fixed until the day of their death and are content in the end to describe as pleasures for want of any better, those mediocre distractions, that just not intolerable tedium which is enclosed there with them, Swann would endeavour 
not to find charm and beauty in the women with whom he must pass time, but to pass his time among women whom he had already found to be beautiful and charming. And these were, as often as not, women whose beauty was of a distinctly common type, for the physical qualities which attracted him instinctively and without reason were the direct opposite of those that he admired in the women painted or sculptured by his favorite masters. Depth of character, or a melancholy expression on a woman's face, would freeze his senses, which would, however, immediately melt at the sight of healthy, abundant, rosy human flesh. If, on his travels, he met a family whom it would have been more correct for him to make no attempt to know, but among whom a woman caught his eye, adorned with a special charm that was new to him, to remain on his high horse, and to cheat the desire that she had kindled in him, to substitute a pleasure different from that which he might have tasted in her company, by writing to invite one of his former mistresses to come and join him, would have seemed to him as cowardly an abdication in the face of life, as stupid a renunciation of a new form of happiness, as if, instead of visiting the country where he was, he had shut himself up in his own rooms, and looked at views of Paris. He did not immure himself in the solid structure of his social relations, but had made of them so as to be able to set it up afresh upon new foundations, wherever a woman might take his fancy, one of those collapsible tents which explorers carry about with them. Any part of it which was not portable or could not be adapted to some fresh pleasure, he would discard as valueless, however enviable it might appear to others. How often had his credit with the Duchess, built up of the yearly accumulation of her desire to do him some favour, for which she had never found an opportunity, been squandered in a moment by his calling upon her in an indiscreetly worded message for a recommendation by telegraph which would put him in touch at once with one of her agents whose daughter he had noticed in the country just as a starving man might barter a diamond for a crust of bread indeed when it was too late he would laugh at himself for it for there was in his nature redeemed by many rare refinements, an element of clownishness. Then he belonged to that class of intelligent men who have led a life of idleness, and who seek consolation, and perhaps an excuse in the idea which their idleness offers to their intelligence, of objects as worthy of their interest as any that could be attained by art or learning. The idea that life contains situations more interesting and more romantic than all the romances ever written. So, at least, he would assure, and had no difficulty in persuading the more subtle among his friends in the fashionable world, notably the Baron de Charlus, whom he liked to amuse with stories of the startling adventures that had befallen him, such as when he had met a woman in the train, and had taken her home with him, before discovering that she was the sister of a reigning monarch, in whose hands were gathered, at that moment, all the threads of European politics, of which he found himself kept informed in the most delightful fashion, or when, in the complexity of circumstances, it depended upon the choice which the conclave was about to make, whether he might or might not become the lover of somebody's cook. It was not only the brilliant phalanx of virtuous dowagers, generals, and academicians, to whom he was bound by such close ties, 
that Swann compelled with so much cynicism to serve him as panders, all his friends were accustomed to receive, from time to time, letters which called on them for a word of recommendation or introduction, with a diplomatic adroitness which, persisting throughout all his successive affairs, and using different pretexts, revealed more glaringly than the clumsiest indiscretion a permanent trait in his character, and an unvarying quest. I used often to recall to myself when, many years later, I began to take an interest in his character, because of the similarities which, in wholly different respects, it offered to my own, how, when he used to write to my grandfather, though not at the time we are now considering, for it was about the date of my own birth that Swann's great affair began, and made a long interruption in his amatory practices. The latter, recognizing his friend's handwriting on the envelope, would exclaim, Here is Swann asking for something, on guard, and either from distrust or from the unconscious spirit of devilry which urges us to offer a thing only to those who do not want it, my grandparents would meet with an obstinate refusal the most easily satisfied of his prayers, as when he begged them for an introduction to a girl who dined with us every Sunday, and whom they were obliged, whenever Swann mentioned her, to pretend that they no longer saw although they would be wondering all through the week whom they could invite to meet her, and often failed, in the end, to find anyone, sooner than make a sign to him who would so gladly have accepted. Occasionally a couple of my grandparents' acquaintance, who had been complaining for some time that they never saw Swann now, would announce with satisfaction, and perhaps with a slight inclination to make my grandparents envious of them, that he had suddenly become as charming as he possibly could be, and was never out of their house. My grandfather would not care to shatter their pleasant illusion, but would look at my grandmother as he hummed the air of, What is this mystery? I cannot understand it, or of Vision Fugitive, in matters such as this, tis best to close one's eyes. A few months later, if my grandfather asked Swann's new friend, What about Swann? Do you still see as much of him as ever? The other's face would lengthen. Never mention his name to me again. But I thought you were such friends. He had been intimate in this way for several months with some cousins of my grandmother, dining almost every evening at their house. Suddenly, and without warning, he ceased to appear. They supposed him to be ill, and the lady of the house was going to send to inquire for him, when, in her kitchen, she found a letter in his hand, which her cook had left by accident in the housekeeping book. In this he announced that he was leaving Paris, and would not be able to come to the house again. The cook had been his mistress, and at the moment of breaking off relations she was the only one of the household whom he had thought it necessary to inform. But when his mistress, for the time being, was a woman in society, or at least one whose birth was not so lowly, nor her position so irregular that he was unable to arrange for her reception in society, then for her sake he would return to it, but only to the particular orbit in which she moved, or into which he had drawn her. No good depending on Swann for this evening, people would say. Don't you remember? It's his American's night at the opera. He would secure invitations for her to the most exclusive drawing-rooms, to those houses where he himself went regularly for weekly dinners or for poker. Every evening, 
after a slight wave imparted to his stiffly brushed red locks, had tempered with a certain softness the ardour of his bold green eyes, he would select a flower for his buttonhole, and set out to meet his mistress at the house of one or other of the women of his circle. And then, thinking of the affection and admiration which the fashionable folk, whom he always treated exactly as he pleased, would, when he met them there, lavish upon him, in the presence of the woman whom he loved, he would find a fresh charm in that worldly existence of which he had grown weary, but whose substance, pervaded and warmly coloured by the flickering light which he had slipped into its midst, seemed to him beautiful and rare, now that he had incorporated in it a fresh love. But while each of these attachments, each of these flirtations, had been the realization, more or less complete, of a dream born of the sight of a face or a form, which Swann had spontaneously, and without effort on his part, found charming, it was quite another matter when, one day at the theatre, he was introduced to Odette de Crecy, by an old friend of his own, who had spoken of her to him as a ravishing creature, with whom he might, very possibly, come to an understanding, but had made her out to be harder of conquest than she actually was, so as to appear to be conferring a special favour by the introduction. She had struck Swann, not certainly, as being devoid of beauty, but as endowed with a style of beauty which left him indifferent, which aroused in him no desire, which gave him, indeed, a sort of physical repulsion, as one of those women of whom every man can name some, and each will name different examples, who are the converse of the type which our senses demand. To give him any pleasure, her profile was too sharp, her skin too delicate, her cheekbones too prominent, her features too tightly drawn. Her eyes were fine, but so large that they seemed to be bending beneath their own weight, strained the rest of her face, and always made her appear unwell, or in an ill humour. Some time after this introduction at the theatre, she had written to Aswan whether she might see his collections, which would interest her so much, she, an ignorant woman with a taste for beautiful things, saying that she would know him better when once she had seen him in his home, where she had imagined him to be so comfortable with his tea and his books although she had not concealed her surprise at his being in that part of town which must be so depressing and was not nearly smart enough for such a very smart man and when he allowed her to come she had said to him as she left how sorry she was to have stayed so short a time in a house into which she was so glad to have found her way at last speaking of him as though he had meant something more to her than the rest of the people she knew, and appearing to unite their two selves with a kind of romantic bond which had made him smile. But at the time of life, tinged already with disenchantment, which Swann was approaching, when a man can content himself with being in love for the pleasure of loving, without expecting too much in return, this linking of hearts, if it is no longer, as in early youth, the goal towards which love of necessity tends, still is bound to love by so strong an association of ideas that it may well become the cause of love if it presents itself first. In his younger days a man dreams of possessing the heart, of the woman whom he loves. Later, the feeling that he possesses the heart of a woman 
may be enough to make him fall in love with her, and fifty, at an age when it would appear, since one seeks in love before everything else a subjective pleasure, that the taste for feminine beauty must play the larger part in its procreation, love may come into being, love of the most physical order, without any foundation in desire. At this time of life a man has already been wounded more than once by the darts of love. It no longer evolves by itself, obeying its own incomprehensible and fatal laws, before his passive and astonished heart. We come to its aid. We falsify it by memory and by suggestion. Recognizing one of its symptoms, we recall and recreate the rest. Since we possess its hymn engraved on our hearts in its entirety, there is no need of any woman to repeat the opening lines, potent with the admiration which her beauty inspires, for us to remember all that follows. And if she begin in the middle, where it sings of our existing henceforward, for one another only, we are well enough attuned to that music to be able to take it up and follow our partner, without hesitation, at the first pause in her voice. Odette de Crecy came again to see Swann. Her visits grew more frequent, and doubtless each visit revived the sense of disappointment which he felt at the sight of a face whose details he had somewhat forgotten in the interval, not remembering it either so expressive, or in spite of her youth, so faded. He used to regret, while she was talking to him, that her really considerable beauty was not of the kind which he spontaneously admired. It must be remarked that Odette's face appeared thinner and more prominent than it actually was, because her forehead and the upper part of her cheeks, a single and almost plain surface, were covered by the masses of hair which women wore at that period, drawn forward in a fringe, raised in crimped waves, and falling in stray locks over her ears, while, as for her figure, and she was admirably built, it was impossible to make out its continuity on account of the fashion then prevailing, and in spite of her being one of the best-dressed women in Paris, for the corset, jetting forwards in an arch, as though over an imaginary stomach, and ending in a sharp point, beneath which bulged out the balloon of her double skirts, gave a woman, that year, the appearance of being composed of different sections badly fitted together, to such an extent did the frills, the flounces, the inner bodice follow, in complete independence, controlled only by the fancy of their designer, or the rigidity of their material. The line which led them to the knots of ribbons, falls of lace, fringes of vertically hanging jet, or carried them along the bust, but nowhere attached themselves to the living creature who, according as the architecture of their fripperies drew them towards, or away from her own, found herself either straight-laced to suffocation, or else completely buried. But after Odette had left him, Swann would think with a smile of her telling him how the time would drag until he allowed her to come again. He remembered the anxious, timid way in which she had once begged him that it might not be very long, and the way in which she had looked at him then, fixing upon him her fearful and imploring gaze, which gave her a touching air beneath the bunches of artificial pansies fastened in the front of her round bonnet of white straw, tied with strings of black velvet. And won't you, she had ventured, come just once and take tea with me. He had pleaded pressure of work, an essay, which in reality he had abandoned years ago, on 
Vermeer or Delft. I know that I am quite useless, she had replied. A little wild thing like me, beside a learned great man like you, I should be like the frog in the fable, and yet I should so much like to learn, to know things, to be initiated. What fun it would be to become a regular bookworm, to bury my nose in a lot of old papers, she had gone on, with that self-satisfied air which a smart woman adopts when she insists that her one desire is to give herself up, without fear of soiling her fingers, to some unclean task, such as cooking the dinner, with her hands right in the dish itself. You will only laugh at me, but this painter who stops you from seeing me, she meant Vermeer, I have never even heard of him. Is he alive still? Can I see any of his things in Paris, so as to have some idea of what is going on behind that great brow, which works so hard, that head which I feel sure is always puzzling away about things, just to be able to say, There, that's what he's thinking about. What a dream it would be to be able to help you with your work. He had sought an excuse in his fear of forming new friendships, which he gallantly described as his fear of a hopeless passion. You are afraid of falling in love? How funny that is, when I go about seeking nothing else, and would give my soul just to find a little love somewhere, she had said, so naturally, and with such an air of conviction, that he had been genuinely touched. Some woman must have made you suffer, and you think that the rest are all like her. She can't have understood you. You are so utterly different from ordinary men. That's what I liked about you when I first saw you. I felt at once that you weren't like everybody else. And then, besides, there's yourself, he had continued. I know what women are. You must have a whole heap of things to do, and never any time to spare. I? Why, I have never anything to do. I am always free, and I always will be free, if you want me. At whatever hour of the day or night it may suit you to see me, just send for me and I shall be only too delighted to come. Will you do that? Do you know what I should really like? To introduce you to Madame Verdurin, where I go every evening. Just fancy my finding you there, and thinking that it was a little for my sake that you had gone. No doubt, in thus remembering their conversations, in thinking about her thus when he was alone, he did no more than call her image into being among those of countless other women in his romantic dreams. But if, thanks to some accidental circumstance, or even perhaps without that assistance, for the circumstance which presents itself at the moment when a mental state hitherto latent makes itself felt, may well have had no influence whatsoever upon that state, the image of Odette de Crecy came to absorb the whole of his dreams, if from those dreams the memory of her could no longer be eliminated, then her bodily imperfections would no longer be of the least importance, nor would the conformity of her body, more or less than any other, to the requirements of Swann's taste, since having become the body of her whom he loved, it must henceforth be the only one capable of causing him joy or anguish. It so happened that my grandfather had known, which was more than could be said of any other actual acquaintance, the family of these Verdurins, but he had entirely severed his connection with what he called young Verdurin, taking a general view of him as one who had fallen, 
though without losing hold of his millions, among the riffraff of Bohemia. One day he received a letter from Swann asking whether my grandfather could put him in touch with the Verdurin. On guard, on guard, he exclaimed as he read it. I am not at all surprised. Swann was bound to finish up like this. <laughs> a nice lot of people. I cannot do what he asks, because, in the first place, I no longer know the gentleman in question. Besides, there must be a woman in it somewhere, and I don't mix myself up in such matters. Ah, well, we shall see some fun if Swann begins running after the little Verdurin. And on my grandfather's refusal to act as sponsor, it was Odette herself who had taken Swann to the house. The Verdurin had had dining with them on the day when Swann made his first appearance, Dr. and Madame Cotard, the young pianist and his aunt, and the painter then in favour, while these were joined, in the course of the evening, by several more of the faithful. Dr. Cotard was never quite certain of the tone in which he ought to reply to any observation, or whether the speaker was jesting or in earnest, and so, in any event, he would embellish all his facial expressions with the offer of a conditional, a provisional smile, whose expectant subtlety would exonerate him from the charge of being a simpleton, if the remark addressed to him should turn out to have been facetious. But, as he must also be prepared to face the alternative, he never dared to allow this smile a definite expression on his features, and you would see there a perpetually flickering uncertainty, in which you might decipher the question that he never dared to ask, Do you really mean that? He was no more confident of the manner in which he ought to conduct himself in the street, or indeed in life, generally, than he was in a drawing-room, and he might be seen greeting passers-by, carriages, and anything that occurred, with a malicious smile, which absolved his subsequent behaviour of all impropriety, since it proved, if it should turn out unsuited to the occasion, that he was well aware of that, and that if he had assumed a smile, the jest was a secret of his own. On all these points, however, where a plain question appeared to him to be permissible, the doctor was unsparing in his endeavours to cultivate the wilderness of his ignorance and uncertainty, and so to complete his education. So it was that, following the advice given him by a wise mother on his first coming up to the capital from his provincial home, he would never let pass either a figure of speech or a proper name that was new to him, without an effort to secure the fullest information upon it. As regards figures of speech, he was insatiable in his thirst for knowledge, for often imagining them to have a more definite meaning than was actually the case, he would want to know what, exactly, was intended by those which he most frequently heard used. Devilish pretty, blue blood, a cat and dog life, a day of reckoning, a queen of fashion, to give a free hand, to be at a deadlock, and so forth, and in what particular circumstances he himself might make use of them in conversation. Failing these, he would adorn it with puns and other plays upon words, which he had learned by rote. As for the names of strangers which were uttered in his hearing, he used merely to repeat them to himself in a questioning tone, which, he thought, would suffice to furnish him with explanations for which he would not ostensibly seek. As the critical faculty, on the universal application of which he prided himself, was, in reality, completely lacking, that refinement of good breeding which 
which consists in assuring someone whom you are obliging in any way, without expecting to be believed, that it is really yourself that is obliged to him, was wasted on Cotard, who took everything that he heard in its literal sense. However blind she may have been to his faults, Madame Verdurin was genuinely annoyed, though she still continued to regard him as brilliantly clever, when, after she had invited him to see and hear Sarah Bernhardt from a stage box, and had said, politely, "'It is very good of you to have come, doctor, especially as I am sure you must often have heard Sarah Bernhardt, and besides, I am afraid we are rather too near the stage.' The doctor, who had come into the box with a smile, which waited before settling upon or vanishing from his face, until some one in authority should enlighten him as to the merits of the spectacle, replied, To be sure, we are far too near the stage, and one is getting sick of Sarah Bernhardt, but you expressed a wish that I should come. For me, your wish is a command. I am only too glad to be able to do you this little service. What would one not do to please you? You are so good. And he went on, Sarah Bernhardt, that's what they call the voice of God, ain't it? You see, often, too, that she sets the boards on fire. That's an odd expression, ain't it? In the hope of an enlightening commentary, which, however, was not forthcoming. Do you know, Madame Verdurin had said to her husband, I believe we are going the wrong way to work when we depreciate anything we offer the doctor. He is a scientist who lives quite apart from our everyday existence. He knows nothing himself of what things are worth, and he accepts everything that we say as gospel. I never dared to mention it, Monsieur Verdurin had answered, but I've noticed the same thing myself. And on the following New Year's Day, instead of sending Dr. Cotard a ruby that cost three thousand francs, and pretending that it was a mere trifle, Monsieur Verdurin bought an artificial stone for three hundred, and let it be understood that it was something almost impossible to match. When Madame Verdurin announced that they were to see Monsieur Swann that evening, Swann, the doctor had exclaimed in a tone rendered brutal by his astonishment, for the smallest piece of news would always take utterly unawares this man, who imagined himself to be perpetually in readiness for anything. And seeing that no one answered him, Swann, who on earth is Swann? he shouted, in a frenzy of anxiety, which subsided as soon as Madame Verdurin had explained, why, Odette's friend, whom she told us about. Ah, good, good, that's all right, then, answered the doctor at once, mollified. As for the painter, he was overjoyed at the prospect of Swann's appearing at the Verdurin, because he supposed him to be in love with Odette, and was always ready to assist at lovers' meetings. Nothing amuses me more than matchmaking, he confided to Cotard. I have been tremendously successful, even with women. In telling the Verdurin that Swann was extremely smart, Odette had alarmed them with the prospect of another bore. When he arrived, however, he made an excellent impression an indirect cause of which, though they did not know it, was his familiarity with the best society. He had, indeed, one of those advantages which men, who have lived and moved in the world, enjoy over others, even men of intelligence and refinement, who have never gone into society, namely, that they no longer see it transfigured by the longing or repulsion with which it fills the imagination, but regard it as quite unimportant. Their good nature, freed from all taint of snobbishness, and from the fear of seeming too friendly, grown independent, in fact, 
has the ease, the grace of movement of a trained gymnast, each of whose supple limbs will carry out precisely the movement that is required without any clumsy participation by the rest of his body. The simple and elementary gestures used by a man of the world when he courteously holds out his hand to the unknown youth who is being introduced to him, and when he bows discreetly before the ambassador to whom he is being introduced, had gradually pervaded, without his being conscious of it, the whole of Swann's social deportment, so that in the company of people of a lower grade than his own, such as the Verdurin and their friends, he instinctively showed an assiduity, and made overtures with which, by their account, any of their bores would have dispensed. He chilled, though for a moment only, on meeting Dr. Cotard, for seeing him close one eye with an ambiguous smile, before they had yet spoken to one another, a grimace which Cotard styled, Letting them all come. Swann supposed that the doctor recognized him from having met him already somewhere, probably in some house of ill fame, though these he himself rarely visited, never having made a habit of indulging in the mercenary sort of love. Regarding such an illusion as in bad taste, especially before Odette, whose opinion of himself it might easily alter for the worse, Swann assumed his most icy manner, but when he learned that the lady next to the doctor was Madame Cotard, he decided that so young a husband would not deliberately, in his wife's hearing, have made any allusion to amusements of that order, and so ceased to interpret the doctor's expression in the sense which he had at first suspected. The painter at once invited Swann to visit his studio with Odette, and Swann found him very pleasant. Perhaps you will be more highly favoured than I have been, Madame Verdurin broke in, with mock resentment of the favour. Perhaps you will be allowed to see Coutard's portrait, for which she had given the painter a commission. Take care, Master Biche, she reminded the painter, whom it was a time-honoured pleasantry to address as master, to catch that nice look in his eyes, that witty little twinkle. You know, what I want to have most of all is his smile. That's what I've asked you to paint, the portrait of his smile. And since the phrase struck her as noteworthy, she repeated it very loud, so as to make sure that as many as possible of her guests should hear it, and even made use of some indefinite pretext to draw the circle closer, before she uttered it again. End of section 15 Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California, for LibriVox